Let's pray. Father, uh, we have opened before us uh, a copy of a miracle. Uh, Your word is inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit, and everything in it is profitable for us. And one thing we will learn today is that you have a purpose for everything in history. And I pray that you would give us a clear understanding of, uh, of the role of the law um, in history. And, and I ask for your help in the name of your son. Amen. Hall of Fame basketball coach John Wooden once said that if, if I were ever prosecuted for my religion, I hope there would be enough evidence to convict me. You will be judged by your works. At the final judgment, the way you lived your life will demonstrate whether or not you had genuine faith. Romans 2, 6 through 8 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now let, me, now let me be clear. Works do not earn your salvation. They do not earn your salvation. But they do provide the evidence that you were saved. The works that believers are able to perform are generated by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, no person is able, to, is able to perform even one righteous deed. Because any work that an unbeliever performs that is good, uh, the, the example that, uh, that I use, uh, that I learned from uh, Two Ways to Live, is that if a convict is running from the law, and that convict helps a, uh, a lady across the street, and the authorities see the person doing that, the convict, would, would, would the authorities be impressed? Of course not. They, they would take the convict and throw him in jail, and justice would be served. That is the position of an unbeliever, because an unbeliever is a rebel to God, and God is the authority. And that person needs to be judged. So God is not pleased, even if they do something that, that is, is good in society. So, but there are works that do please God. And the Holy Spirit is the engine behind these works. So today, we're, we're starting a series on the Ten Commandments. And you may be asking, why are we doing a series on the Ten Commandments? It's because works are important. The same grace that transfers sinners from sin to Jesus Christ is the same grace that empowers believers to obey. So I ask you, is the Spirit producing good works in you? The overarching theme of this series is going to answer that question. Are you performing spirit-generated works? And I'm calling you today to perform spirit-generated works. As we jump into the sermon today, I want to give you a little bit of a background 
of salvation history. The Bible is a, is, is a big story. It, it's, a, it's what like, people call a meta-narrative. It, it's an overarching story with tons of smaller stories in the midst of it. And the story begins, of course, with creation. You know, in the beginning, God creates everything good. And then you, you turn to Genesis chapter 3, and what you see is that sin comes into the world through, through the sin of Adam and Eve. And Genesis 3.15 offers us hope because God didn't say, okay, I'm going to wipe out the entire human race because they sinned. Instead, he gave hope for the human race by promising that there would be a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent. And, and, and that is mentioned in Genesis 3.15. Salvation has always come from outside of people. It's always been by grace through faith. Always. And this is demonstrated clearly in Scripture through Abraham. Now his name was Abram, and then later it was changed to Abraham. And in about the year 2000 BC, he had a conversion experience. And Abraham was saved the same way that you and I are. By grace, through faith, alone. So Abraham was told by the Lord to look toward heaven and to number the stars. And if he was able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And it says that Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham became born again. But 430 years later, something strange happened. God gave the Ten Commandments. Paul tells us it was 430 years later. Now, did God change his plan of salvation? Did, did he say, okay, we're, we're going to do it this way. And then as he's writing the story, he's like, wait, let, let's, 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 let's switch how this is going to work. Hey, have you ever written a paper where you're, you're, you're about six pages in and you're like, I, I need, to, I need to, to, to switch gears here. <laughs> I've done that. God is the author of this story. And of course, it, it's a perfectly crafted story. And from the very beginning, he knows what he's doing. He's not making things up as he goes. So when God gives the law, he has a, a, a purpose for giving this law. So the answer is, God did not alter his plan. Every person is saved by grace, through faith. So why the law? I am going to explain four reasons why God gave the law. Four reasons. And once we do that, We'll set the table for the sermon series of the Ten Commandments. We're going to be doing one commandment per week, starting next week, and today we're setting the table. There are four reasons why God gave the law. And the first reason why he gave the law is that the law reveals God's holiness. It reveals his holiness. In Exodus 20, God made a covenant with Moses and Israel. It's known as the Mosaic covenant. And, and this was a covenant that they broke. Not, not too long after the covenant was made, 
Israel was, was called to obey this covenant. And if they obeyed it, they would receive blessing. If they disobeyed it, they would be cursed. And in Exodus 32, just 12 chapters after this covenant was made, Israel broke the covenant by worshiping the golden calf. But the good news is the Lord is gracious. He renews the covenant and the Ten Commandments are rewritten on tablets in Exodus 34. After reissuing the Ten Commandments, the scripture describes the Lord's character. The same one who gave these commandments, his, his holiness is described in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now the one who gave the law is holy, and he expects his people to be holy as he is holy. And this is what the Lord says in Leviticus 11, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The The law reveals the Lord's holiness. That's the first reason. The second reason why the Lord gave the law is that the law defines your sin. It defines your sin. The law reveals to us what sin is. Now, now there's people on planet Earth who have, they've never opened up the Bible. They've never read it. But they have a conscience. Every person has a conscience because everybody is created by God. So that when someone who does not have access to scripture does something wrong, does something sinful, their conscience accuses them and says to them, you did something wrong. You don't need a written word to know that you did something wrong. Romans 3.20 says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. People don't need to know the law to feel bad about something. In 2004, I took a trip to Washington, D.C. It was a, an American history trip. And as we were in Washington, D.C., we, we visited the Smithsonian Museum. And at that time, they had a little exhibit, a, a room you could walk into, and you could see the very flag that Francis Scott Key, the one who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner, the flag that he was looking at when he wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. And as, as you might imagine, the flag was in rough shape. Uh, they, they, were, they put these chemicals um, you know, to restore it. It's from the, you know, 1776 or whatever. And there was a sign leading into the room that said, no flash photography. And so it was clearly written, this is not allowed to be done in this room. Of course, I'm 17 years old at the time, I walk in, and I take a picture. The entire room flashes, <laughs> and everybody looks at me, <laughs> and I was confused, because I didn't look at the sign when I walked in. 
But I, I did something that was wrong. And all of a sudden, the security woman comes up to me, you know, very intimidating, and says, what are you doing? And, and I said, I, I looked at her like I had no idea what I did was wrong. And she said, there's no flash photography. And she, she came out and she showed me the sign. And she actually let me keep the picture. Uh, but no flash photography. And, and at first she said, give me your film. But then she, she turned back on it. But the sign told me I, I shouldn't take a picture. But I, but I did it anyways. I did it out of ignorance. But what I did was wrong, even though I didn't know what was written. And in the same way, Gentiles who did not have access to the law, or even people on earth who have no access to the Bible, they do things wrong because their conscience bears witness against them. But the law tells you what sin is. Uh, Romans 7.7 7 says that, it, that if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law ha- had not said, you shall not covet. So it, it gives a name to the sin. And Romans 2.14 and 15 describes the experience of Gentiles who do not have the law. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. But once the Jews received the law, they were able to put a name to their sin. And, and the very things that their conscience was accusing them of, they were able to say, okay, this is why I feel that way when I commit this act. Okay, so that's the second reason that the Lord gave the law. The third reason that the Lord, uh, that the Lord gave the law is that it reveals God's certain judgment. And, and you'll notice in your outline, it doesn't fit. That's because I made a change last night. So... You could write that in. The Lord reveals God's certain judgment. I was looking at this like, I, I need to make a change here. So I did. It was, it was, I think it's worth it. When God delivered the law of Moses, he revealed the standard by which he would judge. Now when the law comes, the righteousness does not come through the law. The scripture is very clear about that. So when God gives the law, is this good news or is this bad news? It's bad news. Because they can't keep the law. And the law can't save them. And the law tells them that this is what you're going to be judged. The law gives the guideline of what God will use to judge them. And they can't keep it. That's a hopeless position to be in. In Galatians 3, 19, Paul says, Why then the law? He says that it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So Paul answers the question here. It was added because of transgressions. And and what is really interesting is that Paul uses a different word here for sin. The the typical word for sin uh, that is used in most places, he does not use here. Instead, he uses the word transgression. And there is a difference between these two words. Transgression is known sin. Where sin where the general word for sin is, is that the sin isn't known th- through the law that makes it known. 
Romans 4.15 says that where there is no law, there is no transgression. So known sin leads to a, constant, a conscious violation of God's law. So, so that's the position the Israelites were in once they received the law. They knew that they were violating these laws because it was given to them. And then Paul explains later here in Galatians 3, 21 and 22, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So righteousness cannot come from the law. So this isn't good news when they receive it. Instead, the law holds everyone captive under sin. They're, they're told, okay, this is what you're going to be judged by. You can't keep it. And so you, you're in a hopeless state. The demands of the law make it impossible for sinners to fulfill it. There are about 150,000, according to a report uh, in 2012, uh, prisoners who are serving a life sentence. And 50,000 of those prisoners are serving a life sentence uh, without parole. And each of these prisoners who serve this life sentence, they, they know the law of the land, and they know the crime that they've committed, and they are in prison until the day they die. And the fact that they know the law of the land doesn't do them any good. They're, they're, they're going to be in this state of captivity until their death. And this is kind of how it was for the Jews. Uh, the Jews thought that they could keep the law. This, this was the mistake that they made. And they were, they were doing an impossible task. They, they couldn't keep the law, and they were going to be judged by it. And this is what Paul goes after in his letters. He's saying, you guys think you can earn righteousness by the law, and you can't. It, it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the point he's making. So, so any Jew who's trying to keep the law to earn salvation, they, they get to the point where they're like, Lord, I can't do it. And God's like, exactly. And he points the head to Jesus. Salvation comes by faith through grace. By grace through faith. Mix those two words. And Paul describes the law as a guardian. It was something that hovered over them. He describes that in Galatians 3.23. It was a guardian that, that they were held captive to and they were prisoners to. And it was lifted when Christ came. So it was temporary imprisonment to show the guidelines that God would use to judge them. So the law brings certain judgment. And God will judge you by the law. Romans 2.12 says this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be, will be judged by the law. Romans 3.19 says the same thing. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world will be held accountable to God. The law was unable to rescue. It was only able to judge. And it showed them their sinful state, and it offered no solution. But this is where the good news comes in. It was meant to point ahead to Jesus. And this is the fourth reason why the law was given. The law points ahead 
to Jesus. Now, God gives the law to Moses 430 years after he gave it to Abraham. And and it's pointing ahead to a person. Now, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, whose salvation was Abraham's pending? His salvation was pending on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And every person in history before Christ came and after Christ, their salvation only comes through his finished work. Romans 10.4 says that Jesus is the goal of the law. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now the law requires righteousness. And you can't stand before God justified unless you're fully righteous. And, and Jesus is the one who fulfills this righteousness. So you're in a hopeless state. Apart from Christ, the standard for the law is impossible to achieve. And so, so, and so as we've mentioned in the previous point, you're in a hopeless state. And so you need to rely on someone else to fulfill this righteousness for you. And that's precisely what Jesus has done. And this is what Paul writes in Romans 8, 3, and 4. He says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Okay, so Jesus finished work on the cross, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. He fulfills the law. The law was pointing ahead to him from the very beginning. And so you today are not under the law. The Ten Commandments are not binding on you. You live in the freedom of the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. But Paul asked the question in Romans 6.1, Shall you go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, he says. So the question that arises is, if we're not under the law, why are we studying the Ten Commandments? Why are we doing, taking 10 weeks to do a sermon series on the Ten Commandments? question that I ask you is, are you still commanded not to murder? Are you still commanded not to covet? Are you still commanded not to commit, to commit adultery? Are you still commanded not to steal? Certainly those commandments still apply to you. And you know what Jesus does? He goes even further than the Ten Commandments. He says in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus, the, the bar was pretty low with the Ten Commandments. He actually goes further and says, you need to obey this. But, but, but you will obey it by the grace of God that comes through the Holy Spirit who enables you to do it. And every command that we go through over the next 10 weeks will be focused on that. You are able to do this because you've been transferred to safety and God has empowered you by the Holy Spirit to obey. Hebrews 12.4 says that without holiness, you will not see God. God is preparing you in your life, once you've been saved, to be holy. As he says, you will be holy for I am holy. That's his design for you. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, you will notice that they're all moral laws 
nine of the Ten Commandments are moral laws that are universal, and they apply to every point in history. They applied to the Jews in the Old Testament, they applied to Adam, they applied to us today. Nine of the ten, and you might be wondering, okay, which one, what am I leaving out here? The, the Sabbath is one that there's some debate, does that still apply to us today? It, it, it probably doesn't. This was something that God desired for the Jews to do, but certainly God, in his, when he set up the created order, made it so that we would need rest. You know, and I'm a seminary student right now, and I'll tell you what, I need rest. I, I need a day off. And I'm not going to get one until next week probably, but you, you need rest because if you, if you work around the clock, you, you don't feel right. And so, so I don't think it's a moral command, though. But nine of the Ten Commandments still apply to you today. And, and we will be going through that. It, it is worth preaching through these. And as we lead up to next week, I wanted to read kind of the setting before the Ten Commandments were given. The Lord gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from... Exodus chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 16. And I'm going to read leading up to the verse that Andy is going to preach next week. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 3. We'll start in verse 16. And you can follow along if you'd like. And w- one thing I want you guys to see is the holiness of God. And you, one thing we, we fail to see so easily is how holy God is and how sinful we are. And... And, and be amazed that this God made a way for us to be reconciled to him, that we could be his people, and that we could be in his presence. Okay, verse 16 of, of Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's the setting, the holiness of God. He was separate from the people, and now he's going to deliver them the Ten Commandments. And next week, uh, Andy Kaler will be preaching the first commandment that the Lord gave Israel. You shall have no other gods 
before me. So come back next week, and it'll be a great hearing from Andy. Let's pray. Father, we're blown away by your holiness and the peelings of, of thunder and the earth shakes, Lord, when, when your presence is made known. And, and I, when, I, when, I think of, when I think of the Bible and, and, and different accounts where people were in your presence, all they, what they did is they, they bowed down before you and they trembled and they couldn't say a word because of your holiness. And, and I pray, Lord, Lord, we will meet you one day. And it will, be, it will be frightening because you are holy. And I pray that you would prepare each of us to meet you that day. Um, you've saved us. That's the first step. And once we're saved, you've called us to be holy. And so I pray that we'd spend our lives living out the grace that you've given us uh, to be more like you. And that, and that the day that we die, or the day that Jesus returns, we would, we would be ready. And ready to be your people. Because one day, Lord, you will be our God. And we will be your people. And you will dwell with us. And we look forward to that day. So I ask that you prepare us and be with us as we go through this series, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.